there. Welcome to Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with me, Ken McDonald, former director of public prosecutions and barrister at Matrix Chambers. And with me, Tim Owen, also a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in criminal, public law and human rights law. In this episode, Ken and I thought we should catch up on recent political developments that are likely to influence our legal system between now and the next election. The Trust government has moved quickly in lots of ways, and we want to discuss the dramatic announcement that Dominic Raab's proposed British Bill of Rights has been unceremoniously dumped, and Nadine Dorry's online safety bill is destined for radical amendment. We also speculate about what to expect from the new law officers, the Attorney General and the Solicitor General, whose legal careers to date have been perhaps less than prolific. We also discuss the opinion drafted by Lord David Panic KC and Jason Popjoy at the request of the Cabinet Office, and which attacks the legality and fairness of the inquiry by the House of Commons Committee of Privileges into whether former Prime Minister Johnson is guilty of contempt of Parliament over Partygate. To illuminate our discussion, we're joined by Murray Hunt, Murray's an old friend, an associate member at Matrix Chambers, his current day job, is as director of the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law. Before that, he spent 13 years as legal advisor to the Joint Committee on Human Rights in the UK Parliament, a role which involved him scrutinising all government legislation for human rights compatibility. And before that, he was a barrister with a wide-ranging practice in public and human rights law. He was one of the key driving forces behind setting up Matrix Chambers in 2000, which is when Ken and I got to know him. Murray, many thanks for joining us and welcome to Double Jeopardy. Thank you very much, Tim and Ken. Delighted to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you, um, Murray, and we've been looking forward for some time to getting you on. Um, and, and now seems a, a, a particularly good time because one of the pieces of legislation that Tim and I have discussed on a number of occasions with a variety of guests was the uh, proposed Bill of Rights uh, legislation, the legislation that was going to uh, re- was going to repeal the Human Rights Act and set up a new British framework for rights, as the government put it. And I, and I, I admit that our our general assessment was that this was a pretty poor piece of legislation. And and I I, I, I just want to read something which um, a spad from Number Ten who worked on this bill tweeted recently, and this is in the context of the Trust government abandoning this legislation. This this guy, Rajiv Shah, tweeted, there's nothing we can do on the domestic level to change the fact that we are bound by Strasbourg. The proposed Bill of Rights cannot do that. The only way to do so is to leave the ECHR, he tweeted. And he went on, I think this is fairly um, insightful on his part, this bill would have been a political nightmare for the government, it would have overpromised and underdelivered. The parliamentary passage would have been hell, and it would lead to very few gains for the government. This is somebody who was working on the the bill in number ten. I, I stress. He went on to say this, and I think this is particularly uh, insightful uh, on his part. Further, furthermore, it would mean that we would own it. When the deportation of a foreign national offender gets blocked, it would no longer have been because of quote Labour's Human Rights Act unquote, but instead it would be because of quote the Tories' Bill of Rights, unquote. Um, he, he then says, to Liz Truss's credit, it looks like she wants to focus on effective reforms and has wisely chosen to drop this bill, 
even if it might cause a backlash from the right of the party. Now, it's interesting that he repeats there a number of the criticisms that Tim and I and various of our guests have made of this piece of legislation um, over recent weeks. It, it was pretty awful, wasn't it, Murray? It was, Ken. And I think Rajiv is absolutely right in, in what he tweeted about this. There was a fundamental incoherence, really, at the heart of the bill. It was trying to sever our connection in our terms of our legal framework for protecting human rights uh, from the underlying ECHR in a whole variety of ways um, and set us on sail, uh, set us sailing in a direction of divergence, which was the deliberate intent of the bill. Um, but at the same time, we were remaining a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, um, which doesn't permit of the sort of divergence that the bill was really meant to bring about. So it was fundamentally flawed in its conception. Um, and he's also right, I think, in terms of the political trouble that it would have led to. Uh, it clearly would have over it clearly was overpromising. Uh, it couldn't deliver the various policy outcomes which the surrounding material suggested it could deliver. There would still have been court judgments which the government wouldn't have liked. Um, and I think he's absolutely right that uh, at the end of the day, people would have seen this as a very disappointing piece of legislation, even if they approached it uh, from the perspective of wanting to be free of the shackles of the European court. Yeah, they'd have been going through an absolutely hellish process in Parliament, particularly in the House of Lords, where this would this bill would have been absolutely savaged for very little benefit. I think one example which we mentioned before is the the dreaded jury trial provision, which I think was intended to give this bill a particularly English, if you like, flavour, uh, which, which essentially said your right to jury trial is guaranteed unless the law says otherwise, which is not uh, in any noticeable way different from the legal position as it exists today. But the, the bill was full of this kind of rubbish, wasn't it? It was. I must say, when, on my first reading, I felt extremely sorry for Parliamentary Council, um, having to make sense of the uh, of the brief to draft a lot of these things. Um, a lot of the provisions, uh, as that one was, that was that was probably the most absurd. But a lot of the other provisions as well, the ones trying to redefine proportionality, for example, um, were really were, were, were quite absurd and, and in many ways uh, looked like a sort of caricature um, of, uh, of a piece of legal drafting. So I completely agree. So I think we do have to hand it to, to, to Liz Truss, and, and um, I hesitate before saying this, but you know this is this is a very, it seems to me, wise decision by her to dump this. Not least for the reason that Rajiv gives. Well, two reasons. First of all, it's not going to achieve anything, and secondly, it removes their major excuse uh, going forward when things go wrong. So it's a pretty sensible thing for her to have done politically. Yes, I agree. I think the I think the passage of it would would, as he says, have been extremely difficult through Parliament. Uh, it undoubtedly would have received a mauling in the House of Lords, even if it had sailed through the Commons. Um, and it's pretty likely that um, at the end of that session, uh, it wouldn't be as easy to, to force through the bill in its original form in the way that the government did in the last session with the Nationality and Borders Act, uh, the political context having changed so much since then. Uh, so I think the dropping of the bill has saved the government um, an enormously costly political journey this session. Do you, to what extent do you think, Murray, that um, the decision was based on, uh, one could say, a, a, a principled view that Liz Truss, having been Foreign Secretary, may have taken, that the idea of withdrawing from the ECHR, particularly at this time with war raging in Europe, would have looked politically dreadful, and therefore um, uh, uh, she wasn't prepared to do that, despite Suella Braverman now in her, her Home Secretary having specifically campaigned on that. So to what extent do you think it was that sort of principle view that we can't withdraw, as opposed to the more kind of uh, realpolitik that it would have been an unbelievably hellish uh, process of, of getting the bill through Parliament and wasted a lot of parliamentary time? 
it's quite hard to speculate um, as to as to what her reasons are um, for for having having dropped. I think there'd be a variety of reasons. Um, I'm not aware of Liz Truss as Foreign Secretary um, having been uh, a champion of um, of the European Court of Human Rights or the European Convention system. Um, however, as she said in her speech to the UN General Assembly um, this week, uh, she is a defender of the rules-based international order, uh, and she did make speeches to that effect as a Foreign Secretary. Um, and on any view, the Bill of Rights Bill was not really consistent with the UK still claiming to be a defender of the rules-based international order while it was in undermining the European Convention on Human Rights System. So I think it was probably um, a variety of um, a variety of reasons for dropping it, but some of them also, I think, probably to do with the political considerations that Ken has outlined. Yeah, of course, this isn't the end of the battle by any means, is it? I mean, we're going to we're going to talk about the new law appointments to the cabinet in, in a moment, but but we we shouldn't um, assume because it would be completely wrong to assume that this is this is over um we, we, you and i met, met met a few days ago murray and you you expressed the view to me that that what would happen now is that there would be pieces of discrete legislation trying to achieve some of the aims of uh, that bill but in a different way in in particular areas and could and, and i think that that's probably right in fact i'm sure it's right could could you just could you just set out for our listeners the sorts of Bit, sorts of areas that you think they might continue to probe and attack and the sort of legislation that we might have brought forward over the next year or two? Yes, I think as a Bill of Rights, the the, the Bill is dead. I don't think that the idea of a, of a British Bill of Rights is going to come back. Um, it's certainly not in this Parliament. Um, but yes, I, I certainly expect there to be elements of what was in the Bill um, coming forward, probably in Home Office legislation. It's fairly clear that the the new Home Secretary, Suella Bravman, um, is, the, is the leading ideological proponents of this agenda now within the cabinet. Um, and I think there are some clues in the speech that she gave to Policy Exchange back in August about the elements that she's likely to want to bring forward. Her priorities as Home Secretary are clearly going to be stopping the small boats and trying to see through the Rwanda deportation policy. And I think anything which she perceives the European Convention on Human Rights or the Human Rights Act um, poses as obstacles to the achievement of those policy objectives are going to be the target of legislation. So, for example, I think it's quite likely we'll see Clause 24, which is the provision uh, which would have which would have made interim measures from the European Court of no domestic legal effect whatsoever. I think we can probably expect to see that coming back in some form or other, because that's clearly going to be an ongoing issue in relation to the Rwanda deportation policy. Uh, I think there are quite likely that we'll see um, an attempt to redefine provisions in the Convention that we know the Home Secretary thinks have been expanded by judicial interpretation. So that's the right to respect for private and family life in Article 8, even possibly um, the right not to be subjected to inhuman and degrading treatment under Article 3, which she thinks has been uh, expanded by judicial interpretation. So we might see Home Office legislation which attempts to impose on courts a stricter definition of these articles for the purposes of domestic law in the immigration and asylum context. Um, and it's also possible other provisions in the bill which try to restrict the definition of proportionality, uh, which also try to limit positive obligations that convention rights give rise to. They may also come back in some form uh, because we know the Home Secretary regards those also as judicial um, illegitimate interventions. Murray, can I just take up a couple of things? The first thing is, from what you've said, you don't think that 
three key features of the Bill of Rights Bill will necessarily be revived in some other form. That is the uh, obligation to take into account decisions of the Strasbourg Court, the Section 3 Human Rights Act interpretative obligation to read legislation so far as is possible compatibly with the Convention, and then the duty on public authorities to act in accordance with convention rights. So th those three aren't going to come back. But what, so perhaps you can deal with that, but also, can you just comment again, if, how do you remain a member of the convention scheme if you don't accept the Rule 39 interim measures power? Because that's just going to lead to yet more litigation in Strasbourg, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so take that point first, Tim. Absolutely, it's, a, it's, it's absolutely clear that uh, if that provision, as it was in, in Clause 24 of the Bill of Rights Bill were enacted, it would lead straightforwardly to breaches of Article 34 by the UK in Strasbourg. There are plenty of examples of that. It's an absolutely straightforward breach of Article 34 because you're interfering with the, uh, the right to petition. Uh, so there's no there's no room for ambiguity there. It's on its face incompatible with the European Convention, undoubtedly. Um, so that, that's very, very clear. Um, in terms of the sections two, three and six, um, it's not impossible that the MOJ might be considering whether there, there's some way that they might bring forward some legislation or in some MOJ legislation, they might have a go at the Section 2 and Section 3 um, provisions, which were the targets of the Bill of Rights Bill. Section 6 was broadly um, left alone um, by, the, by the Bill of Rights Bill, um, but that didn't necessarily matter because it was weakened. So the convention, the status of the convention was weak so many other ways. Um, but, but the interpretive obligation and the duty to take account of convention rights possibly could um, reappear. Um, but again, I think, going back to our sort of opening discussion, uh, they're likely to sort of bite off battles, um, which the government is probably better advised not to fight. Um, so I think I, I would be surprised to see them come back. I mean, if, 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 if her decision, if the government's decision on this bill is anything to go by, um, it, it may be that there's some recognition on the part of the government about how tough some of this stuff really is. I mean, Dominic Raab was, was on a real flyer here. And, and, and actually, the problems underlying all of this for the government, if they really want to have their cake and eat it over Strasbourg, are incredibly difficult and, and complex. I mean, you, you, it seems to me you're either, either in or you're out. If you're in, you've got to largely play by the rules. Although, of course, uh, this Home Secretary is someone who... Um, the new Home Secretary is someone who's shown herself willing to push the envelope in the past. And she's had some thoughts uh, that she's expressed, hasn't she, on the role of government lawyers and uh, how government lawyers should be servicing um, ministers. Do you want to say something about that, Murray? She has. Um, Suella Brabham, when Attorney General, um, made it clear that she thought that government lawyers were too risk-averse when they were giving their legal advice to ministers um, and, and needed to be a bit more prepared to take risks. Um, uh, and that's actually now come out in the form of uh, new guidance from the Attorney General to government lawyers um, in their approach to legal risk. So we now actually have um, a public document which formulates the approach which government lawyers um, are to take. Um, and it is actually quite an extraordinary um, change which is taking place uh, because the test um, which has to be applied to, to when government lawyers are advising whether a policy might be unlawful um, is an incredibly high threshold test. Um, it's only if there's no respectable legal argument that can be put to a court, um, only if that test is satisfied, um, should a, a legal advisor in a government department advise that a policy is unlawful. Um, it reminds me of um, a long time ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, American friend of mine, um, who was 
being positively vetted in the States at the time of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Uh, and he was asked, um, have you ever done anything which would embarrass the president of the United States? Uh, to which he said, well, it's rather a high threshold um, in the circumstance. And I think the, the threshold of this test um, is really pretty extraordinary. Um, so we've got now an approach which um, will be being applied by government lawyers to policies, which is really in the context of ministers who want to sort of take on uh, international legal frameworks. We know we've got plenty of examples of that, might want to challenge um, case law um, developments and so on. Um, and the, the threshold now is going to be extremely high. So I think it is something which deserves a bit of scrutiny. Does it also raise an ethical question? Because we know as barristers that we're bound by the, the, the code of conduct. And, and in one area, for example, we're not allowed to settle a pleading um, alleging fraud against somebody unless we have a sufficient proper evidential basis to do it. And I mean, I, I know it's not, a, it's not the identical scenario, but I mean, you, you're looking at a scenario in which, say, a government lawyer uh, on the Treasury panel has said, well, look, uh, I think it's 85% certain that you will lose in court. But, you know, there's a 15% argument that you can advance to try and uphold this policy. But I am telling you that I think it's unlawful. And on the Braverman approach, um, bequested now to the Attorney General's office, is, is, it, is it your understanding, therefore, that as long as you can have got that respectable 15%, um, you, you carry on, you go into court and defend the, defend the policy? That, that's clearly what the effects of the, the guidance is. Um, it, it may even be higher than 85%, Tim. Um, it, it's, it's really clear there's a traffic light system um, and it, even if there's a very high risk of a successful legal challenge, um, that might, might still mean the policy is proceeded with. Um, it's only if there's no respectable legal argument that, the, that the, the, the policy is unlawful and therefore won't be proceeded with. Um, so the red light on the traffic light system is only in that extremely narrow category of case, um, which is, as we all know, um, what counts as a respectable legal argument um, is uh, it's not a very high threshold. So it is very high. So, so, so if it's in any way legally arguable in a respectable way um it's lawful but we but we know that lawyers can almost always find some some sort of argument that will seem to them at the time to be respectable i mean that that's what they're paid that's what they're paid for and what what she's saying to government lawyers is that's what you're being paid for you know you have to find us an argument essentially and if there's any argument at all then your advice to me as home secretary should be this is a lawful policy i mean that is a, that's a very significant change and it will it seems to me encourage all sorts of quite risky advice to ministers from lawyers, which is presumably what she wants. She wants them to be less risk averse, which means they'll take more risks, which means the advice will be riskier. And the question is whether that's what we want in the government legal service, that it's giving risky advice to ministers, particularly to ministers like her, who have shown themselves in the past to be reasonably comfortable with behaviour that, that many people would think yeah. breaches international law. Uh, I mean, we, we had Jonathan Jones on the podcast a few weeks ago, and of course, he resigned over all this. He resigned because he felt that that she, as Attorney General, was not not just turning a blind eye to unlawful conduct, but was endorsing it. I think it's also, before you answer that, Murray, or comment on it, it's also going to affect the way judges are going to respond, I think, to submissions made by government counsel in court. Because if you know that a, a, a barrister is being forced into court under the guidance to argue a sort of utterly crap... Uh, point, which has managed to get over the Braverman threshold of, you know, a 5% prospect of victory. It's going to affect the way judges 
I think, respond to a submission. You're going to have much less confidence a lot of the time. I entirely agree with that, Tim. I mean, I think um, one of the features of, um, of the margin of appreciation in the Strasbourg case law and the sort of equivalent due deference doctrine in our domestic law um, is that judges know that governments get legal advice, which is pretty high quality legal advice. Bills get subjected to very rigorous scrutiny before they get introduced. Um, and that is sort of that implicitly feeds in to a presumptive starting point that judges think they're entitled to take of starting to be starting point of being deferential um, and they need persuading um, that uh, policies and laws that have gone through those processes that they've got confidence in um, are actually unlawful. So I completely agree. I think it's actually going to invite courts to be much more robust in this. I think this is a really good point. Tim and I both sit as judges and I, I mean my experience is that the, the level of trust that you have in counsel and in the probity of their submissions is absolutely fundamental to, to, to the way you approach a case and if you if you think that um, government lawyers have been encouraged to to approach problems in this way, then that seems to me to be bound to weaken justice, your, your, your confidence in them. But let's broaden this out a bit. Will we get any comfort from the new Attorney General and the new Lord Chancellor? Um, uh, are, are they going to stand up in the face of this, this barbarism and fight the good fight and drag us back to where we ought to be? Murray, what do you think of the the appointments? Uh, before before you answer that, perhaps we should just introduce them to a, a world yeah. that may be less than familiar <laughs> with these two individuals. So the new Attorney General is Michael Ellis, uh, KC, MP, and the new Solicitor General is Michael Tomlinson, uh, who is not KC. They're both barristers, although I don't think Michael Tomlinson practised at the bar. Mr Ellis did have chambers in Northampton, but again... I would say that neither of them um, has made much impact in the law as as practitioners, as far as I'm aware. I may be wrong about that, but I'm not aware of it. Murray, I don't think you are. I don't think you are wrong. I think I think yeah. um, Michael Ellis is a parliamentary silk, isn't he? He got silk yeah. as a result yeah, of being MP rather yeah. than because of any weight of practice that he that he undertook. Um, so, what what do you make of of of, of Michael Ellis? So I have to say, I don't know either Michael Ellis or Michael Tomlinson um, at all, um, either in my professional capacity or um, having worked in Parliament. So I haven't come across um, either of them. Um, so um, an unencumbered, really, in terms of um, experience. <laughs> um, but I think there is a really interesting early test for the attorney um, in this question we've just been discussing about the guidance on, on legal risk. Um, so Ella Bradman now, um, as Home Secretary, um, will, will, I'm sure, be... Um, approaching her legal advisors in the home departments in the home section in the home office against the background of that advice and and, and then we know as we know there are going to be very many contentious legal questions so i think a really interesting early question is going to be um will the new law officers revisit that attorney general's guidance on legal risk i doubt it personally uh, i think michael ellis is best known in, in in recent years for being the person who was put into bat for boris johnson in the house of commons whenever the latest twist or turn uh, occurred in the Partygate scandal. As, 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 at every new outrageous piece of news, it was Michael Ellis who would pop up to defend the Prime Minister's probity and explain how reasonable all of his statements had been and how everything was hunky-dory. I think that's that's the context within which we best know him. Um, whether that bodes well for him as an independent giver of high-grade legal advice to the government is another matter. I mean, I, apparently, uh, whether this is of any significance, I, I don't know, but, but Ellis, Michael Ellis, the Attorney-General, he was, in fact, a Sunak supporter. Uh, Tomlinson, I'm not sure who he supported, but he was a member of the European Research Group. So he will, I assume, have been closely aligned with the Braverman 
approach to life. Talking about being put into bat, there is one fascinating uh, item in, in Michael Tomlinson's Wikipedia entry. It says that in May 1997, he made one appearance in minor county cricket playing for Herefordshire against Dorset when he did not bat or bowl. <laughs> but <laughs> well, let's hope it, his let's hope for his sake his political career is more illustrious than that. What about what about the new Lord Chancellor Brandon Lewis? He's most famous, I think, for conceding that the that a, a particular um, piece of legislation the government was proposing in relation to Northern Ireland would 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 reach um, uh, international law. I think in a he said in a specific and limited controlled way, way. limited specific and limited, limited way. way. So. Yeah, so at least he, he, at a time when everyone else was avoiding the question or denying it, he, he actually stood up in the House of Commons and said, yes, we are going to break the law. So that that's uh, an interesting background for a Lord Chancellor um, uh, and Secretary of State for Justice. What, what, do, you, what do you make of, of, of that appointment, Murray? He didn't seem too troubled by having to make that um, that that statement <laughs> in Parliament. So I think that that's causing a lot of concern, I think, amongst lawyers, that, 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 he, that he didn't really see the enormity um, of, of what saying that actually entailed. Uh, so I think there's he's, he's got quite a lot to prove in relation to that, to come back from that, from that rather stark statement, I think. Um, he's, of course, called by Marina Hyde, um, Pooper Scooper in Chief, um, which is not a, not, a, not a title that you would want to, uh, want to have in the Cabinet. Um, he, he, um, a bit like the role you were scrambling for, Michael Ellis would quite often um, be uh, wheeled out to, um, to smooth over uh, some, some troubles that had arisen uh, under the on the Today programme, he was he was the kind of minister for the Today programme, wasn't he? He, he was, party. he was, uh, and, and he was very effective at it. Just um, re remains to be seen, I think, really, in terms of his, um, in terms of whether he will restore to the role of Lord Chancellor that sort of robust independence that we really need the office holder to to have. Um, I think remains to be seen. One one thing that was very disappointing is that just before the announcements were made, the Times had a story which seemed to be very well sourced that the new Attorney General was going to be Lucy. Fraser, um, and they were very confident. They were saying this is the appointment, and and she's going to get it tomorrow. And 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 it's a great shame that she wasn't made Attorney General because she's a highly credible figure. She was a, a proper commercial silk, not a parliamentary silk. She took silk at the age of uh, forty at the criminal bar. She's a highly uh, commercial uh, bar. I think. Commercial bar, yes, commercial bar. Um, highly, highly competent lawyer. Uh, uh, highly, highly impressive individual. And I and I think. Um, it was hugely disappointing that, that she wasn't appointed. I thought maybe Liz Truss had had a brainstorm and had, had sort of accidentally made a good appointment for a moment, <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't to be. I was just going to say, I mean, I think she does, um, she, she would, I think, inspire some confidence in, in having a sort of robust independent-mindedness, um, both from her sort of previous barristerial career, uh, but she was also reported um, in the media at least as having questioned um, something that Rishi Sunak said uh, about the, the, the need to... Um, to tear up EU laws very quickly um, and sort of accelerate the the bonfire of retained EU law, um, and in her position, I think, as um, in the Treasury, I think she she questioned that position um, from a legal perspective. So I think she does have some sort of track record of independence to point to. Yeah, it could it could also be that whoever was going to be appointed to that office had to pass a litmus test on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, issue uh, as to whether the advice they would give would. Um, effectively be in accordance with what Truss intends to do about that. Yeah, it's perfectly possible that she was on the brink of being appointed, but when she was asked the various questions, she didn't pass the test, um, largely because she had too much integrity to pass the test, it would be my guess. <laughs>
going to talk about the online safety bill. You, I, I was going to ask you, because it's a short item, but perhaps you can just update us, because um, you're more on top of this, than I think, than anybody, on the recent announcement of, of changes to that piece of legislation. Of course, it was Mich- uh, Doris's, Nadine Doris's major piece of legislation, and it, it, almost immediately it looks as if it's going to be subjected to a certain amount of change. change. Well, this was a huge piece of legislation, actually, dealing with a whole welter of problems. And, the, you know, the central thrust was to deal with abuse um, and unlawful material on the Internet. And it, it stirred up a real hornet's nest, not least amongst um, free speech advocates of all stripes. I mean, the, the Internet free speech uh, advocates, but also the Free Speech Union, the organization uh, which was founded by Toby Young, which has quite a lot of traction, actually, amongst um, conservative MPs and peers and, and other other uh, MPs and peers as well who are concerned about free speech issues. And what they were concerned about was the so-called um, lawful but harmful provisions. And, and these were provisions in the bill which were designed to deal with material on the internet that was lawful but harmful. Uh, and the central provision gave the minister the right to essentially to categorise particular material as harmful, although it was lawful, uh, and to require it uh, to be taken down or, or to require um, the internet company, the tech company, to deal with it in some way um, as a result of that designation. And, and this raised that the spectre of ministers really being granted a very wide power to censor um, what was on the internet. And it, and, and it was very, very poorly received um, by many parliamentarians. Uh, and the word now is that the bill is going to continue to be brought forward, but with those provisions substantially modified. And what Michelle uh, Donlan, the um, the minister, said is that the child protection um, provisions will remain, but the lawful but harmful provisions will be uh, reframed in some way. Quite how they're going to uh, protect children um, from lawful but harmful material, but allow adults still to see it, um, is a, a very open question. One of the newspapers suggested this morning there may be some sort of age verification requirement uh, for all access to the internet. Um, I imagine that that's a, 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 a nightmarish prospect from a technical point of view, and would also raise all sorts of um, freedom and privacy concerns. So I think I think this is. Um, uh, still a bit of a mess. Uh, it's not at all clear how they're going to change those provisions to satisfy the critics, but they claim they're going to come up with something. We'll just have to see. I, I think it's a very, very tricky area, actually. I mean, people like David Davis say if it's lawful in the real world, it should be lawful on the internet. Um, that's probably to an extreme a position, but it's got a, a lot of support and traction out there. And that, that's the that's the, the the thing that they're having to grapple with. It's not easy. It's It's a real drafting problem. Murray, uh, any thoughts on that? It is a very tricky problem, and I think that's the kind of been the core of the the problems that the bill has had. I think I hope it's not delayed for too long because there definitely is quite an urgent need for a, a clearer, a better legal framework um, governing this generally for all sorts of protected purposes, including children. Um, so hopefully this isn't sort of really been kicked into the long grass. But the bill was bedeviled with lots of um, vagueness and uncertainty in all sorts of respects, um, and despite the fact that it's had pre-legislative scrutiny and it's really been. Uh, crawled over a lot. Um, those still remain in the bill. So I saw. I must say, uh, Lord Sumption, Jonathan Sumption, wrote a, a piece on it in the Times a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, and when I read it, I did think because I think he's he, his is a voice that's taken very seriously um, by policymakers in in the government. And I, when I read it, I thought 
because he focused in particular on the chilling effect of this uh, uh, lawful but harmful discretion. Uh, and so perhaps it's not such a surprise uh, that they've decided to ditch it. I think he, I think he was right. And I think I think one of the, the, the major concerns is that the tech companies would err on the side of caution. Um, and, and, and that means they would take down lots of stuff um, that, that probably ought to be taken down. There's this sort of general unease about, um, you know, outsourcing freedom of speech control to, you know, billionaires in Silicon Valley and, and Nick Clegg and, and people like that who are not elected, and have no accountability and are not responsible to us in any meaningful way. You know, it, shouldn't it be the state that is uh, re- regulating this sort of stuff rather than private companies? I think that's a central philosophical problem with what they're trying to do. So, Ken, um, shall we turn finally to the uh, Lord Panic opinion? And if I give a a little summary for everybody about the context for this opinion, what it says, and then you and Murray can have a a go at saying what you think about it. Um, So uh, the position is, as as everyone may know, that Boris Johnson... um, is is being investigated by the House of Commons Committee of Privileges um, on the basis of statements made by him when he was Prime Minister on the floor of the House concerning compliance with COVID regulations. And the allegation was that he was misleading or had misled the House and that was a contempt of the House. So before he resigned as Prime Minister, Johnson uh, instructed, or the Cabinet Office instructed Lord Panic, uh, Queen's Counsel, and Jason Popjoy, both of Blackstone Chambers, to advise on whether the committee was proposing to proceed uh, in a manner which was lawful. Uh, And the opinion, which has been published, anyone can read it, concludes very strongly and clearly that the committee's approach on the substantive issue of of what the mens rea or mental element of contempt of the House involves, as as well as saying that it's proposing, it's it's intending to proceed in important respects in an unfair manner. Now, of course, the context is that um, the proceedings of the House are protected by the doctrine of parliamentary privilege. That goes back to Article 9 of the Bill of Rights, 1689, which says that no no authority, including a court, can challenge statements made in the course of parliamentary proceedings and therefore the way the House proposes or the committee proposes to proceed cannot be reviewed by a court. And and Lord Panic's opinion obviously factors that in but says if it could be reviewed by a court, a court would conclude that it is unlawful for all the reasons he gives. And without going through it all, he concludes that uh, in order to prove the intention, to in order to find a person guilty of contempt of Parliament, um, there has to be proof that a person did so intentionally, so an accidental misleading could not be a contempt, and he relies on a new, no, numerous uh, different factors to establish that point. Um, he also then addresses the standard of proof uh, and says that balance of probabilities, the civil standard of proof, is too low. It should be that the allegations are significantly more likely than not to be true then looks at the issue of anonymity of witnesses because it's intended that some witnesses will be anonymous to Mr Johnson. Query, will they be anonymous to the committee? Uh, then also criticises the fact that Boris Johnson is not necessarily going to have access to all the information before the committee, won't be given the full details of the case, therefore. Uh, also attacks the fact that he won't be represented by counsel capable of cross-examining witnesses. So that's the panic 
opinion in a nutshell. Um, and it's obviously been used politically to uh, undermine the credibility of the way the committee is proposing to proceed. So over to you, um, Murray, first of all, w w what's your view? So I think there are some good and important points um, in the, um, the David Panic and uh, <clears throat> Jason Popjoy uh, opinion on, on, on both scores, both in relation to um, the mental element of the contempt um, parliamentary offence, if I can put it that way, um, and in relation to procedural fairness. Um, but I don't agree with, um, with, with all of the points that they make. Um, I think, to take the intention point first, um, I think they're right that to say inadvertently misleading the House is a contempt um, must be too wide. On the other hand, um, I think intentionally misleading the House is probably too narrow if one looks at the way in which contempt has been interpreted by Parliament. Um, inadvertently misleading and then failing to correct has been held to be a contempt. Um, and also, what about recklessness? I mean, this really, I think, is probably the core of this case. Um, it's, it's, it's really what did for the former Prime Minister in the end over the Chris Pincher affair, a sort of casual relationship with, um, with the truth, with the facts, not caring too much about whether what was said was completely accurate. Um, and I think that's probably in play here in relation to, to these allegations. Um, a reckless state of mind, a casualness about whether or not Parliament has been misled. <clears throat> and there must be scope um, to, to have that discussion in the committee rather than just being a choice between inadvertent and intentional. On the procedural fairness stuff, um, so I think broadly, obviously, Parliament has to be fair if it's going to be conducting inquiries which have such serious consequences as the Committee of Privileges can visit on members. But we have to remember that this, this, this is not a judicial procedure. Um, this is a parliamentary committee. Uh, and the danger of taking um, a purely legal approach um, and the approach that the opinion takes, if this were a judicially reviewable body, what would be the procedural standards of fairness, is that you lose that context. Um, now, Parliament is partly to blame, in my view, for this, because it's never really grappled with, uh, seriously and systematically, with the question of how fair are its procedures before these sorts of committees. It's always been a little bit reactive, a bit ad hoc, incrementally inc improving things here and there, never done a sort of systematic over overhaul of how these procedures need to be made fairer. But on the other hand, if we impose a full set of judicial standard procedures, um, some of those are quite inappropriate for the parliamentary context. I can't really believe that Parliament wants uh, members to be represented by council um, in parliamentary committee proceedings, for example. Um, so I think that goes too far. Um, but I think there probably is scope to look at the fairness of the procedures um, against, against the background of those standards, but bearing in mind that the context is different in a parliamentary committee. There is a great irony here, of course, which is that Boris Johnson um, could actually go straight to Strasbourg um, with an Article 6 complaint because he's got no domestic remedy. Human rights, that doesn't apply to Parliament. Um, he wouldn't have to bother with exhausting his domestic remedies. He can go straight to Strasbourg uh, and make a complaint under Article 6. But he'd lose. He'd lose there. He would lose, but the, um, the Strasbourg court wouldn't say um, this is nothing to do with us because of parliamentary privilege. They wouldn't say we haven't got jurisdiction over this in the way that a domestic court would. But I think they would defer. I think they would say the, the procedure here is good enough. No, there's a, there's a case, um, a case involving Jeff Hoon, which went yeah. to Strasbourg, and they, they said that Article 6 doesn't apply. Yeah to these uh, privileged proceedings because what's at, what's at stake is not, not someone's civil rights, it's their political rights. So Article 6 specifically doesn't apply. And I think that's, I think that's an important context here. I mean, these are not um, judicial review proceedings. They're not court proceedings. The committee is acting at the direction of the House. And, and, and I think one of the, I mean, I think, I think, I think David 
uh, in this opinion, uh, David and Jason make some very good points about fairness. Obviously, the fact that Article 6 doesn't apply doesn't mean the proceedings don't have to be fair. They have to be fair. Uh, and I've no doubt that some of um, the procedure will be adapted um, as they go forward. Uh, Sir Ernest Ryder, the retired Court of Appeal judge who is acting as legal advisor to the committee, and the clerk of the journals, who is the House legal advisor to the committee, are, are both clear um, that the procedure which is being proposed for this committee is entirely appropriate in the context of a parliamentary inquiry uh, of this sort. I agree with what you say about intent, um, Murray, it's hard to see how an entirely accidental misleading of the House, uh, swiftly corrected once it was drawn to the attention of the misleader, could amount to a contempt. But recklessness um, surely could. I think there's quite an interesting analogy to be drawn between the advice that David has has has, has drafted here and the approach that he took during the Anthony Lester case. Anthony Lester, um, as many of our listeners will know, was the extremely distinguished um, silk, probably father of the Human Rights Act in many ways, who came a bit of a cropper towards the end of his uh, career in the House of Laws and was suspended uh, for, I think, um, uh, a, a year or so. And, and David at that time was arguing that proceedings had been unfair, for example, because um, uh, Anthony had not been allowed to cross-examine witnesses. He'd not been allowed to be represented by counsel in the hearing. And there was a debate about this in, 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 in on the floor of the House of Lords. Um, and there was quite a strong feeling that, that to to try to incorporate very firm Article Six due process procedures into these proceedings was hardly appropriate. That was one argument. The second argument was that these were essentially inquisitorial proceedings. Um, I, I mean, I on the, on the cross-examination point, I mean, I've seen cross-examination get at the truth. I've seen it obfuscate and uh, intimidate. And, and, and cross-examination is not the only way to get to the truth of a matter. So I, I think that it's a mistake to try to import wholesale um, processes and notions of fairness from such a strictly defined context as a courtroom context into a hearing of this sort. And there are many, many tribunals in many, many contexts up and down the country, in universities, in workplaces, in all sorts of places where where the sorts of rules that apply in court simply don't apply because they wouldn't be appropriate. And lawyering up is a good example. You don't want to be conducting these proceedings with everyone lawyered up because nothing ever happens. You never get anywhere. Yeah, can I come back on that? I mean, I think the fundamental difference is when the House is dealing with its own members, whether it's the upper or lower House, as opposed to dealing with members of the public. One of the cases that David Panic quotes in, in the opinion is the treatment of three former News International uh, journalists and executives and News International. That's Tom Crone, Les Hinton and News International itself and I declare an interest I acted for Les Hinton in the context of those proceedings and there what was being proposed was to in effect try these individuals and the company for contempt of parliament um, without giving them any of the kind of basic uh, protections that you would expect if you were being tried in a criminal court and the allegation was in effect one of criminal contempt of lying to a select committee and in the end they backed down I'm pleased to say in that case. But I think there's a difference there between proceeding against an ordinary person and trying them in Parliament. I think, you know, you can't do that. You can't pretend that you're a court and then not act like a court. But I do agree substantially with what with what Ken and you are saying, that, I mean, one can't 
apply that to the way the House is dealing with its own personnel. On the Article 6 point, yeah, Hoon against the UK. Jeff Hoon, his application to Strasbourg was declared inadmissible on the basis, as Ken said, that uh, the fact that you can't um, get an effective remedy because of Article 9 of the Bill of Rights um, is is too bad in effect because getting a seat in Parliament is a political right, not a civil right. So it doesn't negate Article Six at all. I mean, the, the, what the committee is not considering a, a criminal offence. It's not considering a tort. It's not considering a civil wrong. It's it's considering a question to do with its own processes and procedures. And um, it, it's adopted a kind of semi-inquisitorial style. It has a legal advisor. Um, it has a, an independent legal advisor, uh, Ernest Ryder. It's acting at the direction of the House. Um, and and I think at the moment what they're proposing to do has sufficient elements of fairness to make it acceptable. I, I don't think that the proceedings are unfair because Boris Johnson isn't entitled to be represented by a lawyer. I don't think the proceedings are unfair because he's not entitled to cross-examine. Um, I, I can see that... Um, evidence being given to the committee in secret, which is never revealed to him, but which forms part of their decision uh, is problematic. And it may be that that Ernest Ryder will have something to say about that as as the situation um, develops. But I think on the fundamentals, you know, this is a parliamentary process. And and I think that I think that that David is in some ways seeking to graft onto it uh, procedures which which belong in in a in a very different context. That said, we all, none of us yield to anyone in our admiration for the, <laughs> the great and noble Lord Panic. Absolutely right. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I agree with that. Can we just pick up, Tim, on your point about um, about the, the different context of, um, of appearing in sort of private individuals or um, businessmen, uh, businesswomen appearing in front of committees? I mean, I do, I do think that's very different. Um, and it's different from the House dealing with its own members for contempt. Um, but, and, and that, going back to my, my comments, my slightly throwaway comment about Parliament sort of not really having grasped this nettle, um, this has been a sort of ongoing problem. The more committees have sort of sought to hold um, not just ministers to account through their inquiries, but, um, but people outside of Parliament to account through their inquiries, the more urgent it's become to sort of address those procedural fairness questions before committees. Um, and Parliament hasn't really, I don't think, grasped that nettle. Um, nor has it, even in its sort of ancient jurisdiction, to um, to punish people who throw flour in the chamber. Um, those, sorts of, those sorts of things need addressing um, in terms of fairness overall. I think this is absolutely true. And if, if the debate uh, following the 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 finding against Anthony Lester in the House of Lords is anything to go by, there's quite a lot of confusion, certainly amongst peers, about exactly what the rules are and how they're applied. And, and what, what you can't have is a system which in, in which the rules are designed in an entirely ad hoc way for particular hearings. So I think that's right. I think it would not be a, it would be a very good use of some committee's time to look at this in the round and to come up with some proposals and recommendations and, to, and try to codify this in some way. Good. Well, look, I think that's been um, a fantastically useful um, discussion um, and and a very enjoyable Murray thank you so much for your for your time um, and I do hope you'll come back on uh, on another occasion as a guest because I, I think we're going to be entering a, a very interesting period It'd particularly be interesting to see if, if some of your predictions about the sort of legislation we might see emanating from the Home Office come come true and if they do then you know we'd love to have you back on to discuss with discuss these with them as, as they're unfolding absolutely thank you very much indeed Thank you both very much for having me. It's uh, it's been been a great pleasure and I'll be absolutely delighted to come back. Great. Thank you, Murray. Well, you've been listening to Double Jeopardy. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you have, um, 
please do subscribe uh, to this podcast um, share the link uh, with your friends um, you can find us on Twitter uh, um, and you can find the podcast obviously um, on Spotify on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else that podcasts are are available. Um, our producer for this episode, as ever, has been the wonderful Billy Lawrence, um, and we look forward to seeing you again next time. <laughs> <laughs>